Amen. So I have a question for each of you today, and don't worry, you do not have to answer aloud who you received this letter from, but have any of you ever written or received a love letter before? Have any of you, by raise of hands, have written or received a love letter before? Am I the only one? Okay. All right, a number of you have written and received love letters before. I kind of count myself as the last generation to be doing these things, at least within a school context, because I think now everybody's like on their phone, you know, and texting, hey, baby, how's it going? Uh, Thankfully enough, I got to experience what a physical letter felt like. Well, for me, there's a certain time in my life that I'm very fond of, and it's the time that I met Mayla. So we've been married for 10 years, but we originally met sometime around 2009. Uh, a, a few months to leading up to the moment that I would ask her to be my girlfriend, I was preparing for a trip to Georgia, specifically to work at a church in Georgia. And I was so excited about that, so excited to be li- leaving my home state of Florida to go in things were happening. And I made one simple prayer to God. God, I do not want a long-distance relationship. I want to meet a cute little southern belle when I get to Georgia. Will you honor that prayer? Of course, that did not happen. Because, in fact, right before leaving Georgia, I meet Michaela. And she was the person that God had for me. However, I am a little bit slow, and I don't always catch on so well. So I left Georgia and basically tried to close things off with Michaela until I received a picture message from one of my friends who just happened to be hanging out with Michaela on Sunday, and he put her arm around her. And all of those feelings started to flood back into me. And even though I was in a brand new job, I said, I need a personal day. Hopped on a plane, headed back to Florida just to ask her to be my girlfriend. Thankfully, she said yes, that she would go out on a date with me. And then from that, I asked her to officially be my girlfriend. So, as it would happen, we started a long-distance relationship, which ended up being a huge blessing for both of us. Now, this sounds like a really old-fashioned sentence, so it makes me feel old saying it. But I remember for some of our dates, because our, oftentimes if we were going to spend time with each other, it would have to be through our phone calls, through a letter, or taking a plane trip to see each other and visit each other that way. So we were having a date. It was Friday night, and we were having a date. And uh, I called her up, and what we decided to do that day is that we would both drive, this is the old-fashioned sentence, to Blockbuster, That sounds pretty old in this time and day. And if you're younger than the age of 30, Blockbuster is this wonderful place where back in the day you would have to go and physically rent your movies because they did not digitally download onto your computer. So we would go to this ancient place called Blockbuster and pick out our movies. We'd say, oh, go to the action section, and we'd pick out the same film, and, and sometimes those films would be there, and sometimes they wouldn't, and we would head back to our respective homes, and we would pop the, the, the movie into the DVD player, another old-fashioned mechanism used to display videos, and at the same time, we would say, okay, ready? One, two, three, hit play, and we would both hit play, and we would have our little date on the phone watching the same movie 
a few hundred miles apart as she was in Florida and I was in Georgia. So that's a cute little story about our past. But on one particular visit, I received this box from my wife. And it's not a book, it's a box. And inside of it are some nice little notes that she left me. And uh, don't worry, nothing's too spicy in here. Um, And these little notes are typically Bible verses and encouraging letters and words that she wrote to me to just remind me of the growing uh, love that we were forming for each other. So I cherish this little book, this little box, because it's a reminder of that time period and the flowering love that we were starting to develop with one another. And uh, really, it is one of my prized possessions to revisit this at time and read through some of the things that she wrote. So I share this story with you because you might be thinking, well, Pastor Kevin, that's a really cute story about your past, but what in the world does that have to do with Matthew 5, 27 through 30? And what in the world does that have to do with the subject of lust? I want to be honest with you today, church. I do not want to preach the message I have prepared for you. Some of you know this. In fact, I was feeling so weighted by this message that I even reached out to a number of you and asked for prayer. Because it makes me uncomfortable to talk about struggles like this. It's not easy to talk about a struggle like this. But it is in God's word. And for that reason, I believe that I have a pastoral responsibility for us to be able to engage in God's word. Amen? What would it say about our church, or what would it say about me, if we only selectively looked at portions of Scripture at the detriment of others, at ignoring other pieces of Scripture? I think at the very least it would say that we are not committed at least to the full breadth of Scripture, or for some reason feel ashamed of God's Word. And I don't want us to be those kinds of people. It's kind of like if I were to buy you a plane ticket and tell you, well, it's going to be a surprise when you get there. As exciting as that might be, you might be asking yourself, well, what do I bring? Do I bring clothes for warm weather? Do I bring clothes for cold weather? Do I bring clothes to go through, trek through a desert? Or do I bring clothes to be at the beach? It can be helpful to know specific details specifically so you can prepare. And here is a reality, is that whether I preach about this or not, we will all be challenged to deal with the subject of lust, or really any other subject that we talk about on a Sunday morning. So with that in mind, I think it's important for us to learn for ourselves the big idea in the beginning of this message today. And that is, is what's important to Jesus ought to be important to us. I'll say that once more. What's important to Jesus ought to be important to us. So what does that basically mean? It means that if Jesus took the time to share this as at the pinnacle of what is the greatest sermon of all times, then I think as a pastor, I should probably take notice, right? And as a church, we should probably take notice. 
But with that being said, I want to invite a specific posture as we approach these tough subjects. And that is a posture of humility and mutual love and respect for each other. I want to remind you of what 1 Thessalonians 5.11 encourages the church to live out. And 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. You see, it is the mutual responsibility that if you come to Peace Mennonite Community Church, that we see this as a place to build and encourage each other. If you come to this church, we are going to bother you. We are going to bug you about certain things because we take our faith seriously, and therefore we take the building of God's church very seriously. So even when we approach tough subjects, subjects that can in some ways feel like we're stepping on each other's toes, that we do that not in a way to ridicule, to shame, to put somebody into the ground and make them feel sorrowful for their mere existence, but rather we do this in a way out of love and out of respect for one another because we deeply desire the building up of God's church in this place. Amen? So can we right now commit ourselves to this? Can we as a church talk about a tough subject but agree to do it in a way that is God-honoring, that builds each other up, that recognizes all of us are on a journey of being able to try to be more like Jesus? Could we do that today? If, you, if we can do that today, let's say amen. Yes. Amen. So with the spirit of that in mind, I invite you now to open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. We're going to be reading through verse 30. So we'll make it a whopping three verses today. <laughs> Matthew 5.27 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed what? Adultery with her in his heart. Now, I said last week, and if for anybody that hasn't listened to that sermon yet, I encourage you to check out our podcast where you can keep up to date with all of our messages if for some reason you miss a week. Last week, we started this new exposition from Jesus when he begins a new section with the, the thought of, you have heard that it was said. He begins with this phrase each time. You have heard that it was said, and then he quotes an idea from culture that would have been common for, for them. So he does that again here, and he says that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And what is Jesus, Jesus doing right here? He is saying right here, he's really continuing on with the common cultural understanding of the Ten Commandments. So last week he was talking about the Sixth Commandment of not committing murder, and then this week he's talking about the Seventh Commandment of not committing adultery. 
But then within that same principle, he goes and says, you have heard it said, meaning that this is what most people believe. This is at least, at the very least, what people have heard, that you should not do this certain thing. And then he goes and says, but. Now, but is an important contraction that he's bringing on into this sentence. But. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is Jesus going against God's word? No. Is he belittling or tarnishing or in some ways trying to circumvent the commandment of not committing adultery? No. But what is Jesus doing here? Why is he trying to show us these important perspectives? You see, I think what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to elevate our understanding of what sin actually looks like and what the heart of God actually looks like. You see, the Bible teaches us especially in the book of Romans, that all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standards. That all of us have sinned. But for whatever reason, we as people, regardless of the time period that we're in, we have this tendency, do we not, to try to compare ourselves with others. Well, at least I'm not as bad as X. Or at least I'm not as bad as why? Ron really has some problems. Matthew, have you met him? Boy, do I look good next to Matthew. And even if we do not say these things out loud, we all commit these things within our minds and within our hearts where we compare ourselves with others because we think about the good deeds that we've done or the things that we have not done. And from that re- for that reason, we start to form in ourselves a sense of pride. Jesus is trying to touch on this. Because you see, the culture and the time period that Jesus lived in was a very religious time period. There was a movement during this time of being able to do all the right things and live as holy as possible, so to speak, and to live in such a way that you can usher in God's kingdom. The idea of this was not a bad idea. If I were to say, hey, try to live a good life, that's not a bad idea. But what ended up springing forth from that was these weird rules that people were committing themselves to that had nothing to do with the true heart of God's word. So what is Jesus saying here? He's specifically saying that lust is on the same level as adultery. The Greek word for lust is epithemio, epithemio, and it's a very interesting word. It typically means to covet, to desire, to to lust after. You know, unfortunately for us, our society has a very poor understanding of what lust is. 
We tend, in fact, if you just Google the word lust or look at a common dictionary for the word lust, you're oftentimes given a definition of lust is sexual desires for something, strong sexual desires, that that is the definition of lust. That, to me, is an incredibly poor definition. In fact, I, in many ways, reject that definition. Why? Because if all lust is, is intense sexual desires for someone or something, then it does what functionally? It vilifies sex. It vilifies a very natural and good thing that God actually wants for us to be able to engage in, at least under the right covenants. You see, I believe that a better definition for lust is desiring something, and this is my own definition, desiring something outside of its due time or intent. I could replace intent with purpose. Desiring something outside of its due time or purpose. You see the difference there between the common definition of just having strong sexual desires for something and desiring something outside of its time or purpose? That's so different. You see, when Jesus is saying, do not commit adultery... He's saying something that is very true. Adultery does what? It is the breaking of a covenant. You see, many of you who are married, you may remember when you stood up in the front and, and, and were giving each other vows for one another that you said, forsaking all others. That is a covenant you are making with your respective spouse to do what? to fix your eyes on the individual that you're making those vows for or with. So if you start to wander and have a sexual relationship with somebody else, you have broken covenant with the person that you made covenant with, your wife or your husband. So it is absolutely terrible to commit adultery. And look, again, I'm not trying to shame those of us who have struggled with that form of a sin before because I know that there are many who have. And guess what? God's grace abounds, even if that is something that you have struggled with. But the reality is, is that those kinds of behaviors lead to brokenness. I've yet to meet a person who has said, you know what improved my lot in life? You know what just made my relationship with my spouse, with my children, with those around me in life better? When I cheated on my wife, that was the best decision I've ever made. I've yet to meet somebody who says, boy, life got better when I did that. Why? Because whether we realize it or not, there is an inherent damaging effect that sin brings. And that's oftentimes the point of Scripture, is it's trying to not punish us through rules, but rather protect us through life. And it is a very hard thing to do. Because here's the thing, church. 
it is easy for us to feel or to want to feel okay and affirmed by all the actions we do. But not all of the actions we do actually help form good character in us. For instance, we all know that it's probably a good thing to eat food in moderation, to drink water regularly. What happens if you decide not to do these things? You're going to be unhealthy and you might end up dead. In the same way, when we look at Scripture, it's helping us navigate through life in such a way to bring about what? Our own form of spiritual health. But it's hard for us to accept that at times because we would rather believe that what we desire is always what is good for us. And unfortunately, that is the message of the world. The message of the world is, is desire what you would like, and in doing that, that is what is good for you. But is it? I would say not at all. Unfortunately, by not understanding lust well, what ends up happening is, is we don't understand how to deal with lust well. Now, you would be right to assume that Scripture is forming this message specifically driven to men, right? Jesus is saying if even a man commits lust within his heart, he has committed adultery with her. But the reality is, is that lust is not just a struggle for men. In fact, more statistics are coming out that are saying that women deal with lust almost as much as men deal with lust. It's just a different form. For men who are oftentimes visual, they deal with lust within visual forms. But for women, they, you can oftentimes deal with womanly lust in a different form through the kinds of books that you read through the kinds of fantasies and thoughts you allow to be formed within your mind, it's oftentimes a form of lust of wanting to be desired. Women deal with it just as much. But the goal is not to vilify sexual relationship. Sex is a very good thing. It's a godly thing. In fact, if you think about what was commissioned by Adam and Eve, you think about what was the first, one of the first things that God told Adam and Eve to do, to be fruitful and multiply. Well, there's only one mechanism that helps that out. Unfortunately, though, because oftentimes we have a poor definition of what lust is, some of us have a poor understanding of what healthy sexual relationships look like. And the church, unfortunately, has played a part in this, where it has made any feelings of sexual desires a wrongful thing that needs to be whipped out of you. I mean, I cannot think about more literature geared to young boys than to deal with, try to squeeze out of them any sexual desires. 
That is not a bad thing to have those desires. In fact, it is a very natural thing. It's why I ended up with my wife, because when I saw her, I said, I like what I see. (laughs) It's just acting upon those desires, again, with my own definition, outside of its time or purpose. Time or purpose. You know, in Scripture, we're given a really good, a really good example of this. I've preached on, this, uh, on these people before, and for that reason, you may remember the characters of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. Those three individuals were the sons and daughter of King David. And the story is absolutely heart-wrenching. You see, David had a son named Amnon. And he also had a daughter named Tamar. Tamar and Amnon were most likely half-brothers and sisters. So in that time, it was pretty normal, whether we see it right or not in our own time, for people to marry within the family. But Amnon, in particular, had lustful desires for Tamar. And these desires and these passions were so strong in Amnon that he wanted to have Tamar physically so desperately that he even sought out counsel on how he can make this happen. And one of his friends gives him the advice to lure Tamar into his home in order for him to fulfill the desires that he has for her. So he does just that. He goes and he meets with his father, King David, and says that he's feeling ill and that he would really like it if Tamar could attend to him. So unfortunately for Tamar, David falls for the trap and sends Tamar to the house of Amnon. And while he's there, he sends all of his servants away, locks the door, and darkness creeps into the room. And Amnon begins to make his sexual advancements towards Tamar. Tamar, mortified by what is happening in this moment, starts begging Amnon to stop. Please, stop. Don't do it this way. She even says to him, if you just ask our father to give me to you in marriage, I know he'll say yes to that, and then you can have me, because she wants to honor God, and she understands the sacredness of avoiding fornication in fulfilling God's law in a healthy way. Because you see, unfortunate for Tamar, oftentimes, if, people, if it got out that somebody had sexual relationships outside of the covenant of marriage, that that would have been a scarlet letter on her. That she would always be viewed as broken and damaged goods. Amnon, unable to listen to reason, with his lust so strong, decides to reject all of that. What is he rejecting? The right time and the right intent and purpose because he wants her now. And that is oftentimes the pitfall of lust is wanting something in the immediate. So he goes and he rapes Tamar. And what's interesting about Scripture is immediately Scripture highlights the point that his lust 
turned into hatred and scorn for Tamar. Isn't it interesting that he was so passionate about this woman, that this woman who is the object of his fixation, that he was entirely infatuated by, that he could not even think clearly until he had her, that the minute he acts upon those impulses, the minute that he gives into his lust and his sexual desires that are wrongful towards Tamar, that what is replaced once those passions have been fulfilled is just self-loathing hatred because you see lust oftentimes masks the evil and the toxicity around it and so often when you give into lust you realize what you gave into and what you gave into unfortunately is just evil toxic sludge so Amnon throws Tamar out of his house could you imagine that the state that she would have been in battered broken violated in every possible way and then literally kicked to the curb like broken goods now Absalom comes into the picture Absalom loved his sister Tamar so much that he even named one of his daughters after her. Finding out what happens, Absalom tries to advocate for Tamar and telling his father everything that went on. David is so furious at what happened in this situation that he literally rips his clothes in anger and frustration. But and then something really weird happens. He does nothing. He does nothing to bring justice in the life of Tamar. You see, true love always desires to protect. And never desires to just break and have things the way that you want them. That's what lust brings. Lust is so, it's always self-centered. It's always geared upon what do I want in the here and now. So unfortunately for David's family, it would only get worse. And because David did not take on the parental responsibility of bringing justice in Tamar's life by bringing justice to Amnon, Absalom grows in fury. And he begins to instead have a different form of lust. And that is lust for vengeance for Tamar. So he devises a plan to kill his brother, and he does just that. And the story that unfolds after that is one of complete tragedy, and I wish I had all the time to share it because it is incredible of a story. But you see, church, here's the thing. Lust takes many forms. It's not always sexual. Lust can be something that we are giving into, whether, whether we realize it or not. So here are some questions I think we should ask ourselves. Are you never pleased with what you have? 
Do you always think that the grass is greener on the other side? Do you struggle to find contentment? Do you catch yourself regularly wishing for something different in life in a way that makes you depressed about the present? You know, if I were not a pastor and just a self-help motivational speaker, I would probably go then from this point and say, chances are you need more gumption in life. You need to seize the day and figure out what is it that you want and start working towards it so that you can be fulfilled in life. Use this as fuel to help you get your goals accomplished. And there's a little bit of truth to that. But our society is so blind to lust that we can't, we have a hard time even recognizing that everything here that you see, if the answer is to yes, then perhaps you deal with lust. Because this is what it means to deal with lust. To desire something so much so that it makes you discontent with what God has already given you. Where all you're doing is fantasizing and thinking about that thing that you want to have that you cannot be happy without. Marketing in this world is a form of what? Trying to appeal to our lust. Church, lust is a very, very, very important thing for us to overcome. If everyone deals with lust, which I would say we do, how are we handling it? Thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer in the following verses. He says in verse 29 and 30, If your right eye causes you to stumble, do what? Gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You know, sometimes I'm asked the question, Pastor Kevin, do you interpret the Bible literally or figuratively? And I appreciate the question. What they're asking basically is, is do you take the Bible seriously? The short answer for that is, yes, I do. But it's a bad question because there are times in Scripture where we need to take it figuratively. This is an example of it. <laughs> what is Jesus doing figuratively here? He's using what's called hyperbolic language. That's a really fancy word, but you all do it whether you realize it or not. Here's an example. If your sport team wins and they win by a large margin, do you just say, well, we beat them by a significant margin? No, you usually say, oh, man, we crushed them. We destroyed them. It was like, like playing with children out there. <laughs> or if you win a race and you happen to win by a significant margin, what do you say? Oh, man, I beat them by a mile. That's hyperbolic language. You're exaggerating to make the point. And what is Jesus exaggerating to make the point for then? By saying that if your right eye causes you to sin, it is better for you to pluck it out than for your whole body to enter into what? Hell. Jesus is trying to give us the solution now for how we are to deal with lust in our lives. 
And that solution comes around the idea of we need to recognize when we are lusting, and when we do, we need to do what? Cut it out immediately. You know, I've realized as I've done pastoral counseling that even though I enjoy pastoral counseling, I enjoy being able to meet with people and try to encourage them, that I am grateful that I am not a full-time counselor. Why? Because oftentimes I just want to say, just stop doing it. That's the solution. Just, there we go. I'll save you some money. Just stop. (laughs) But in reality... That's easier said than done, right? We can't sometimes just stop, even though we need to, even though that that in some ways is the solution, just stop. So I wanted to offer you guys some ways to be able to just stop doing lust. So here you go. Put on the armor of God. If you haven't heard my series that we've done here on this present darkness, I encourage you to listen to it. It was about a year ago. Put on the armor of God. Read Ephesians 6 for more. Memorize scriptures. When I became a teen, I did not have a holy cross around my life the whole time. I was struggling just as much as anybody else. And I realized that I needed to memorize scripture in order to beat my stinking thinking. So guess what? Matthew 5, 27 through 30 were a common verse that I would read and attempt to memorize. Along with other verses, do not be anxious about anything. Uh, Let your trials be an opportunity for pure joy. For if your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow so that you'll be strong and ready for anything. Right? These verses, I commit it to my life, not just to look like a good Christian, but to defeat the enemy. To defeat my mind that would oftentimes veer into bad directions. So church, memorize scripture. You can't memorize scripture unless you read scripture, right? So do both things. Set healthy boundaries. You know, oftentimes people think boundaries are bad, right? Because we are Americans and we don't like boundaries. We, we just like to do what we want to do. That's ultimate freedom. That's not ultimate freedom. Boundaries can be a very good thing because it oftentimes keeps us from doing what? Veering off of directions that we shouldn't go. So learn how to set certain boundaries for yourself. If, for instance, you're an alcoholic, do you think it might be wise to set a boundary to not go to a bar? Yeah. So what are the boundaries you can set if you deal with lust? If there's certain types of novels, maybe I'm talking more to you ladies now that start to press those things that you know are lustful, maybe you need to pick a different genre. And the romance genre, I have to say, is just oftentimes word porn. Don't read that. If you're a guy, maybe it means you need to go back to a dumb phone. Maybe it means you need to, you know, set a boundary in your life to not fall into a bad habit. Amen? And that leads me to habits. (laughs) Develop good habits. We oftentimes think of boundaries as restriction. I put habits on here because I think habits can also be a good thing. So for instance, a habit could be go for a walk, exercise. Let some of the, the steam that's building up if you're struggling with something be set off in a healthy way. Because believe it or not, one of the best things that you can do to sometimes get your mind off of something you're struggling with is actually doing something else. 
(laughs) So if you like woodworking, do woodworking. If you like running or walking or hiking or whatever it is, do something good for you. Take Take a new hobby. Learn how to cook even better. I don't know. You can figure it out, though. And if you can't figure it out, you need a mentor. You need somebody to bring you accountability in life. Now, I have had accountability partners in multiple times in my life, and I will be honest with you about something. Sometimes it's the blind leading the blind. (laughs) Find a mentor might be even better than find an accountability partner. I'm not saying don't find somebody that can be accountable for you, but if you can find somebody who has mastered the area in life that you're trying to master for yourself, chances are they have the technique that you need in order to master it for yourself, right? So for instance, if you're trying to learn how to be a better woodworker, do you think it's good to talk to a plumber on how to become a better woodworker? No, I mean, unless it's a really awesome plumber that's good at multiple things, but what do you find? You find somebody in the hobby or profession you're trying to excel in because you want to be good like them in it. Well, guys, this isn't hard. Find somebody else who has mastered this so that you then can master it like them. Is this making sense? I'm I'm not trying to treat you like children, but sometimes we need to just be reminded of the simple basic things, amen? And ultimately, remember that it is the Holy Spirit that empowers us. This needed to be on there. Because so many times we try to white-knuckle our faith. But guess what? God has given us a paraclete. He's given us a helpmate, a helper to be able to strengthen and empower us, to resist the enemy and resist the evil things that we desire in life. So do not forget that you can every day pray, Holy Spirit, give me strength to overcome this evil. Holy Spirit, I need you to to help walk me through this. Pray those kinds of things. And ultimately remember for yourself that if it's important to Jesus, it's important to us. Let's say that. If it's important to Jesus, it's important to us. Amen? We will be a church that continues to look at what's important to Jesus. And as the world continues to become more dark, we are only going to shine brighter through committing ourselves to God's word.